Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Uh, today, 75 years ago, August 9th, the second atomic bomb was dropped on the city of Nagasaki. And three days earlier, the first bomb was dropped on the city of Hiroshima. And the great irony and sadness of this day was that an all-Christian bomber crew, they all identified themselves as Christians, from a Christian administration almost entirely, from Truman on down, from a so-called Christian nation, dropped the atomic bomb. And of course, the irony is the place they dropped it was the heart of Christianity in Japan, in Nagasaki. And so if ever there were a moment that indicated, though they claimed all of them almost, the name of the Prince of Peace, clearly the way of peace ye have not known. This would be the instance. The title, God of Peace, or its equivalent, is used like ten times in the Bible, and seven of those times are used by Paul. And Paul relates virtually every doctrine in the Bible, and in the book of Ephesians especially. It describes peace as ushering in, then, the reign of Christ. He's talking about a cosmic peace. Now this is where he begins in 1, 9 to 10. He talks about, he made known to us the mystery of his will, and this pertains to all things in heaven and on earth under the head of even one Christ. And the way of peace then, he describes in 2, as enacted through this unity in the body of Christ. He says, he himself is our peace in 2.13. He's made the two one. He's broken down the wall of hostility. His purpose was to create in himself a new humanity making peace. And in this one body to reconcile people to God through the cross and people with one another. He put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you in 2.17, those who were far away and peace to those who were near. And then he exhorts us to live out this peace in 4.3. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And then he concludes the book describing how we are to be agents of peace. He describes the spiritual warfare as active peacemaking. And so Paul exhorts us, put on the full armor of God so that we can stand firm against the devil, against the schemes of the devil. What's the scheme of the devil? Well, after this long teaching on peace, we understand it's the opposite of peace. It's division. It's hostility. It's violence. And thus Paul warns that this peace is not accomplished through war or violence. He says our struggle is not against flesh and blood, 
but against the rulers, against the powers, against the forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And so Paul speaks about peace in the midst of this Christian struggle. This We could almost say it's a Christian war. If we understand it's not a war of flesh and blood, it's just the opposite. It's over and against that. It's a spiritual conflict. And we put on spiritual armor. And this includes in 615, the entire foundation of the gospel then your feet are fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. What is the gospel? It's peace. If it's not peace, it's not the gospel. I think it's been 25 years ago, Faith and the family. We actually, Faith lived in Kyushu, and on the way back from Kyushu, we traveled to Nagasaki. And Nagasaki Prefecture consists of the Goto Islands. I had never seen anything like this, even though we had been in Japan for some time. But it's a very unusual place because on these islands, many of these villages, there would be a church with a steeple. And the church would be the center of the village. I'd never seen that. You just don't see that in Japan. Several of the villages then, they were Christian. And they had been Christian for 200 years. And of course they had been persecuted in Japan. It was Nagasaki was the heart of the persecution of the Tokugawas. We don't know, you know, how many, but we, we, maybe 10,000 people were martyrs. If that's true, that would be more martyrs than any singular period in the Roman persecution. You know, the Roman persecutions were sort of here and there. The commitment of the islanders endured. They were tortured, they were martyred, they were crucified. And of course, as we were driving to Nagasaki City, we understood that this was also the center of the dropping of the atomic bomb. And the bomb would drop right over the symbol of Christianity in Japan. There is a church that is the symbol, it's the largest church, or it was until they destroyed it, it was the largest church in all of East Asia. And the church marked then the history of this persecution. And so the longest and bloodiest persecution, maybe in the history of Christianity, was in Nagasaki. And they would be the victims of a final martyrdom. More Christians were killed on the day of the dropping of the atomic bomb than had been killed in 200 years of persecution. On the islands there, the Gota Islands, we stopped in the Dozaki Church. And it had been converted into a museum. And it, in the church, I remember the displays, you know, they they had to hide their Christianity, and so the Buddhist priest would come down. You know, they had a downstairs and upstairs in the display, and the Buddhist priest would be praying downstairs, and up above him there would be a, a Christian undoing his prayers as he was doing them. Hidden Christians venerated Mary, the goddess canon. Looks very similar to Mary with the infant Jesus. And so they would venerate canon, but secretly it was a Christian reminder. They would put crosses in 
Buddhist statues so that at a funeral it would look like they were carrying a Buddhist statue but they were actually carrying the cross. At the tea ceremony and this is kind of interesting because we really don't know the history of the tea ceremony. Many believe that the history is connected to communion because if you look at the tea ceremony they all drank from a cup they turned the cup but the Christians would turn the cup three times marking the Trinity and then they would fold the napkins in a particular way to mark okay at this point you know you fold the napkin they're all praying a particular Christian prayer when we went into Nagasaki one of the places we went was the 26 Martyrs Museum and it's a memorial to the 20 Japanese Christians and six foreign priests that were hung on crosses and they were lanced to death. And one of the priests, Paul Mickey, preaches, well, as they're killing him, he preaches a sermon to the people listening. And in the museum, I, I hadn't, I don't know why it hadn't hit me, there were entire clans in Japan that were Christian. Japan was one of the most rapidly Christianizing countries in all of Asia. It had never happened this quickly before the persecution. And so the great irony that it was the Christian nation, the United States, which in one day would kill more people than more Christians. I mean, not to say, you know, there were 70,000 people. We think that at least 10,000 of them were from the Christian population. About half of the population of Japan, around 50,000 of the 110,000 that were Christian, lived right there in Nagasaki. And in the Utakami parish of Nagasaki, which was ground zero, that's where they were concentrated. Utakami Cathedral, they built it in 1895. It was the very ground where the tortures you know, they would come and they would have an image of the Virgin Mary or they would have an image of Christ and they would lay it on the ground and all of the people had to come up and step on it and renounce Christ. And it was a way of revealing the Christians in the population. And that had happened on the very ground that they built the Utakami Cathedral. It was a kind of memorial to the resilience of the Japanese Christians. And then when they added the bell towers in 1925, it was the largest church. It was representative of Christianity in Asia. And the atomic bomb exploded 500 meters from the church and incinerated the building, incinerated the parish priest, Sabuto Nishida. He was going into the church, ironically, to offer sacrament, penance. Fusiyoshi Tamaya was a curate. He was apparently hearing confessions. And maybe some dozen Christians, we really don't know, but about a dozen people. Of course, when you're that close to the epicenter, there's no remains left. You're just incinerated. They have images of just shadows would be all that would be left. And so maybe it, it just right there in Utakami, there were probably 15,000 people killed and 10,000 of them, and these numbers are, you understand that 
these numbers are continuing to increase because if you were in the womb or if you were a child there are still children that were present at the bombings that are they were sick and suffered cancer leukemia various diseases all of their life and so people are still dying from the radiation sickness what I'm describing is the United States wiped out the heart of the Christian population in Japan and the Utakami church symbolic of 200 years of persecution and so that same church became the marker of the atomic holocaust it's still there today they rebuilt it there's a statue of the Virgin Mary that endured the atomic bomb and her face is black and her eyes are black where the bomb you know the burns remain it looks like she's herself and this is the way some Japanese Christians think of it is a kind of victim you know often we hear oh well this was all necessary we had to do this uh, I think that's a reprehensible sort of argument and as Christians I hope we never make that argument but let me assure you these bombs played no role in Japan's surrender we know this because historian Tsuyoshi Hasegawa he actually went back and of course he was able to read the Japanese documents of the diet and the discussion of the military leaders and of course there had been multiple cities destroyed in the war Hiroshima and Nagasaki were not mentioned as they were discussing surrender it was on this day August 9th that the Soviet Union invaded Manchuria which was then held by Japan that was the thing that the Japanese noticed one more city being destroyed that wasn't even part of the discussion but they knew when the Soviets entered the war that that was the end. They already understood the war was ending and they were hoping the Soviets would in some way negotiate peace. Now you might say well that's all fine and good but did Truman know that? Yes he knew that because the Americans were reading intelligence reports that were saying exactly that thing. He knew given the opportunity to keep the Emperor as a figurehead the Japanese were ready to surrender. The great irony is of course that Truman dropped the bombs in a demand for unconditional surrender mainly in concern for the Emperor but of course General Douglas MacArthur kept the Emperor anyway because MacArthur said I can't control this population. We could go through all of the generals but one of the six commanding generals were trying to convince Truman and immediately after said don't drop the bomb it's not necessary the Japanese were ready to surrender this was true of William Lee he he said that by dropping this bomb we've shown that we have the ethical standard common to the barbarians of the dark ages he said this right after they dropped it the commanding general Henry Arnold he said the, this was August 17th just a few days after the Japanese position was already hopeless even before August 9th because the Japanese had lost control of the air they had no air power Admiral Halsey he says it was a mistake he, he accuses the scientists he says they just had this new toy and they wanted to try it out 
That's not entirely true though because the scientists themselves, Leo Cesard, had tried to stop Truman. He had gotten a petition together and the scientists at the Manhattan Project signed the petition. But the commanding generals, the, the military, they're close to Truman, he never saw that petition. Fleet Admiral Chester Nimitz of the Pacific Fleet, he said the atomic bomb played no role, no decisive part from a military standpoint. Dwight Eisenhower, who would become president, he said to Henry Stimson, the Secretary of War, he said, I express my grave misgivings, my basis on belief that Japan was already defeated, dropping the bomb was completely unnecessary, I thought that our country should avoid shocking the world opinion by the use of a weapon whose employment was, I thought, no longer mandatory. And he said that it wasn't necessary to hit them with this awful thing. He thought it was an indictment of the American ethics. General Curtis LeMay, if you know anything about Curtis LeMay, he's the guy who actually carried out the fire bombings. He developed a new kind of weapon. He was ruthless. But LeMay said, don't drop the bomb. He said that this is a month after the bombing. The atomic bomb had nothing to do with the end of the war at all. This is six of the generals. Even Douglas MacArthur was against it. And so despite this scientific, this military opposition, Truman dropped it. I don't want to speculate why, but for whatever reason, whether it was to intimidate the Soviets, it didn't work. Maybe one of the most thoughtful of the scientists was a man named J. Robert Oppenheimer. He's often called the father of the atomic bomb. He would suffer the rest of his life from severe depression. And when he first saw the bomb go off in the desert in Almogordo, he says, I remembered the line from the Hindu scriptures, the Bhagavad Gita. Now I am become death, the destroyer of the worlds. I suppose we all thought that one way or another this was true. And he would tell Truman after the bomb was dropped, I feel like I have blood on my hands. My point here is that where Christian faith and ethics have been made to accommodate violence, each holocaust, each murder, each slaughter of the innocents, it's like we have to go back and argue the case. And with all arguments against the necessity of violence, Somebody's always going to argue the other side. The justification of the atomic bombs is still being touted. You just still hear the same arguments. And the problem, I would hope that it becomes evident, it pertains to our faith, to our Christian faith, that would require violence or that would imagine that there is some sort of redemption in violence. And I'm afraid there is a form of the faith that seems to require that we enact violence. You know, the irony of this is that in Japan, there were many Christians, and theology there has almost a form of the faith that would picture suffering as the inevitable consequence, and even pictures God as suffering. I think this is very much a product of the atomic bombs. And so this all-Christian bomber crew from an all-Christian administration from a Christian nation, maybe we should put that in quotes, vaporizing, incinerating, annihilating tens of thousands of innocent civilians 
a disproportionate number of whom were Christians, and choosing as ground zero. Yes, they had chosen another city, Kokuda, but Nagasaki was their second city. And of course, the Christian faith, you know, you can go through as practiced by these men. You know, Truman was a good Baptist. Henry Burns, you know, war secretary, maybe Truman's closest advisor, was a Catholic. Charles Sweeney, who was the pilot of Boxcar, which dropped the bomb on Nagasaki, he was a devout Catholic. And in fact, after the later in life, he writes to the Pope and he tries to get relief for the victims of the atomic bomb. I don't know how their Christian faith interacted, but Truman said that he uh, never had any trouble sleeping. He never had a second thought. His faith and the faith of many seemed to serve to just ease their consciences. The image of Christians slaughtering Christians in genocidal proportions, as in Nagasaki, I think it exposes the emptiness of a form of the Christian religion. One that would embrace violence. It was precisely their faith, I'm afraid, that blinded many to the reality. Paul is enacting in Ephesians, in his letters, the nonviolent peace of Jesus, which he spoke of. You know, this is Jesus' message on the Sermon on the Mount. It's the message of his entire life and teaching. It's the message of his death on the cross, that rather than crucify, he would be crucified. And Jesus saw peace and nonviolence, our taking up the cross, as a direct expression of the nature of God and of the new reality breaking into the world from God. Jesus says that we should love our enemies. He says God makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Jesus insists that God loves and values all people, even our enemies. The reign of God, the peaceable kingdom, it is an order of a very different kind in which the injustice, violence, and domination characteristic of the oppressive systems and societies of this world are superseded. Peace, nonviolent peace, is not just a means to the realm of God. It is a quality of that realm itself that we implement, we enact. Those who live peaceably are already manifesting the transformed reality of the divine order. Certainly, this is the way the early Christians saw themselves as inaugurating the new order. They refused for at least three centuries, 300 years, to engage in any kind of violence or war. No Christian author approved of Christian participation in the army or in battle for 300 years. Even involvement in the army you know, in peacetime was frowned upon. Tertullian's advice to soldiers who converted to Christianity, quit the army or be martyred by the army for refusing to fight. And that indeed is what many Christian soldiers did when they converted. Walter Wink says, when the Christian church began receiving preferential treatment by Rome, the very empire that it had once so steadfastly opposed war, 
which had once seemed so evil, now appeared to many to be a necessity for preserving the empire because it protected the church. And so the church would rely upon the safety of empire and the method of empire so that a transformation occurred when the church ceased being persecuted and became ironically the persecutor. Once a religion attains power in a society and the state looks to it for support, you know, Christian Rome, that religion must also of necessity join the repression of the state's enemies. And this is why as Christians we cannot identify ourselves with a particular state, with a particular nation state. For a faith that lived from its critique of domination, that was the whole point, and its vision of a nonviolent social order. This shift in the early church, the Constantinian shift, was catastrophic because it would mean embracing and rationalizing oppression. And so you can just count through the centuries. I won't go through all the centuries, but in 1500, we have to estimate about 1.6 million people were killed in wars. In the 1600, 6.1 million. In the 1700, 7 million. In the 1800s, 19.4 million. In the 1900s, 109 million in the 20th century. More were killed in the 20th century than all of the previous centuries put together. And so there is an escalation in world violence. We have to admit the addiction to violence. Civilization is hooked on violence. And Christian peace is the only absolute and clear alternative. We must not mix or dilute the message of the Prince of Peace. As Paul says, shod your feet with the gospel, the gospel of peace. He himself is our peace. He's made the two one. He's destroyed hostility. His purpose was to create a new kind of humanity. I believe he's done that. And we then have to partake of this new humanity. He came and preached peace to you who were far and near. And when we cease preaching peace, I believe we are no longer preaching the gospel. Let us as the body of Christ be the peace of Christ. Let us pray for this peace and let us enact this peace in our lives. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.